0: Amen. Fathers, we've confessed in this song our eternal hope is in Christ for those who are the covenant people who have realized His death on Calvary as salvation for them, as due payment, the wrath of God absorbed in the body, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, for their sin. He, in His resurrection, therefore, is our living hope. Not only was our sin upon his shoulders when he died on Calvary. But our resurrection was assured on the third day when he rose. Lord, I pray for all who are in Christ today. As your word is proclaimed, as these songs have been sung, as our the confession of our souls is stirred to acknowledge the reality of these eternal truths, and we would receive, Lord, the encouragement and equipment that is necessary for us to live in light of the eternal, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the effect of your word and its proclamation this day would produce in us an expectancy, a confidence, a sanctification, and a holiness, and a faith that looks beyond the difficulties of today and tomorrow unto the eternal promises that are assured in Christ our risen hope. It is Jesus Christ that conquered the grave in our sin in one fell swoop on Calvary and on that third day when he rose. And so we have the assurance for all time that we will live with him forever. This day as we turn to his scriptures, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would receive them, would treasure them, would understand them, and that we would be equipped to share them with others to the praise of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to the advancement of his kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well with the soundtrack of this passing storm and with a prayer that our power continues to hold, we now turn to the scriptures. If you have your uh, Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Psalm 119 this morning as we consider God's holy word in eight verses, 73 through 80. This will continue in the 10th stanza our series in Psalm 119, that great, greatest I would argue of all songs in literature, the acrostic psalm, Psalm 119 dedicated with 176 verses to extolling the sufficiency of the Word of God. The title of this morning's message, uh, as we consider the 10th stanza, is the Hebrew letter, Yod, and this uh, additional uh, title, The Trial of Slander, Yod, The Trial of Slander. I've come to title the 21 messages in theory past the first section of the psalm by the trial that's presented in each one. And this morning, the trial of slander is presented to us in verse 78, and here we find the testimony of the psalmist continues once again to instruct and to inform us in his experience and through his proclamation that the word of God is sufficient for this trial as well. Therefore, the aim of this morning's sermon is to expand, excuse me, to expound grounded petitions as equipment for trial. Not only is the word of God sufficient for the trial of slander, but the word of God can be realized in unique and powerful ways in our prayer life. These grounded petitions or requests of the Lord that were based on something solid, significant, and profound is the way that most of this section is structured. And so we'll get into that this morning. With that introduction, your Bible, and your heart open, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of the scriptures today? Again, Psalm 119, 73-80, under the title Yod, we have now the Holy Word of God. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we have remarked time and again through the course of this great song, each verse of each stanza begins with a sequential Hebrew letter. Thus, all eight verses of the 10th stanza in this great Acrostic song begin in the original language with the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Yod. As the psalmist In his trying journey continues, he finds himself facing the slander of his enemies and the Lord's enemies. And as an aside, you should always pray that your enemies are also the Lord's enemies. That means you are united with him, you're an ally with him. It's not that we will be free of enemies in this life, it's just a question of who are our enemies. If your enemies are the Lord's enemies, then you are encamped with him. An ally with him, and so this is where the psalmist found his greatest strength. It's easier to face your enemies when you know the commander of the forces that uh, give you instruction and give you confidence in this campaign is the Lord Himself. In verse 78, we find, in spite of the afflictions he, the psalmist, continues to encounter, he remains encouraged. In verse 78, he describes his afflictions in this passage this way: Let the insolent Be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. The psalmist has faced the trial of slander on his journey in life. He has confessed all along and stands a nine as well that not only is the word of God sufficient for every trial, but also there is often purpose in affliction. In spite of the afflictions he continues to encounter, he remains encouraged, he has learned and confessed in the prior stanza that there is redemptive purpose in the afflictions of the elect. As a reminder, consider verses 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, he says, I went astray, but now I keep your word. If his afflictions have served to teach him, to instruct him and give him the perspective that he must keep to the word of God and live his life according to that standard, then his afflictions have been redeemed, and they have served a godly purpose. Furthermore, he says in verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So we find his afflictions have been redeemed in another way. They have taught him the virtues and the foundation, the standards, the statutes of the Lord. And so it is we see in verse 75, he says and it makes more sense in light of this, that in faithfulness he confesses, you, the Lord, have afflicted me. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Thus again he acknowledges the faithfulness of the Lord, even in the face of various trials. These again, uh, are this stanza anticipates, in this principle, the teachings of Jesus emphasized in the Beatitudes. So, as Jesus is teaching his disciples in that great and preeminent sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 opens in verses 10 and 12. After listing some of the Beatitudes, there's an extended treatment of the blessing of persecution. The extended teaching in Jesus' introduction in his Sermon on the Mount encouraged his disciples with the promise of blessings for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and reviled with false accusations on account of their relationship with Christ. Quote, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. He goes on. Quote, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And certainly the slander of our enemies would fall into that category of persecution for righteousness' sake. The author of Psalm 119, I submit to you, is certainly one of those prophets that Jesus had in mind. So they persecuted the prophets that went before you. The author of Psalm 119 was persecuted. And I submit he was a prophet inasmuch as he was inspired and anointed to record what I consider the greatest song in all of literature. And furthermore, he was no stranger to hardship and persecution as he proclaims the sufficiency of covenant revelation of God in the face of 21 presenting trials including the trial of slander. Covenant revelation is a term synonymous with the Word of God. It is the truth that God has revealed for us to be in right relationship with Him through redemption via His Word. How God has revealed our our relationship to Him, the covenant revelation of God, this is what has inspired the psalmist to continue encouraged in spite of the difficulties that he faced. In our context, he testifies that the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of slander. That has been a recurring theme for us. With each presenting trial, the Word of God is sufficient for this trial as well. Though the author of Psalm 119 remains unknown to us, (coughs) it's a bit of a mystery exactly who he may be. Nevertheless, his testimony is certainly clear. In his journey of sanctification... Just in our text today, these eight verses, he has found understanding, hope, comfort, delight, and holiness in uh, the commandments and so forth of the Word of God. And at this point, kids, would you like to play the stop game? Kids, are you up for it today? So I have submitted to you, the adults, what I call the highlighter challenge. And if I could show you my Bible right now, you would see, by my current count, 83 words highlighted in orange. And what these are is words that mean the Word of God. So kids, when you hear me say a word that is synonymous, which means it means the same thing as God's Word, tell me to stop. All right? Everybody ready? Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Commandments, number one. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. Good, you guys caught it. Rules is number three. That in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Promise number four. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Law number five. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Precepts number six. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Testimony seven. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. Very good, that I may not be put to shame. So there we have it. In summary, as I've said before, or as I began to introduce this point, understanding, hope, comfort, delight, and holiness for the psalmist were found in the commandments, the word, the rules, the promise, the law, the precepts, the testimonies testimonies and statutes of God. So in stanza 10, with these and then in the context of prayer, the psalmist models for us what I call examples of grounded petition. Seeking the Lord on a firm footing to give him what he needs to endure the trial at hand. The yod stanza emphasizes, therefore, the relationship between the nature of God and godly prayer. As we listen, this is something like the Lord's Prayer. It's a model of godly petition, request, seeking the Lord, a model of godly prayer. And if, it, if we heed these words and apply these principles, we too, like the psalmist, will find sufficient equipment to ground us and to equip us for our trials. Let me give you a heading by which we'll divide our passage today into three sections. The heading is this the psalmist makes his appeal according to the following. Number one, verses 73 and 74, he makes his appeal according to the covenantal nature of God. Secondly, he makes his appeal according to the terms and conditions of the covenant, verses 75 through 77. And finally, he makes his appeal according to the covenantal destiny of the peoples, verses 78 through 80. So we have these major themes here, the nature of God, the conditions and terms of the covenant, and then the purposes of God for the peoples according to that covenant, whether they stand in right relationship to him in the covenant or outside of it. So let us consider how the psalmist makes his appeal according to the nature of God. Notice his first reference in verse 73 is to the fact that he has been, as another psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Then verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. The covenantal nature of God is such that he is powerful above and the technical word for that is transcendent, yet he is more. Not only transcendent, our Lord is personal Intimate and in relationship with his people, he is imminent. Over above, surpassing, glorious and holy, and in relationship, communication, revelation and day-to-day intercession through Christ, for His people, He is imminent. This is the nature of God that is expounded in all his mysterious glory in the scriptures, and this passage is no exception. The Lord is personally related to His creation. He's related to his creation in the fact that it was, in this sense, in this picture language, his own hands, as it were, that fashioned and formed the first man, Adam. The first man, Adam. Kids, what was he made out of? What was the first dust is correct. And so this dust was fashioned by the Lord. We read of this all the way back in Genesis. And then how did that dust come alive, kids? That's right. God breathed into that dust and man became a living flesh. This is a picture Of the creative handiwork of our God, the one who is responsible for all, by the word of his power, spoke this universe into being, but then stooped low, condescended, as it were, in his imminence, in his personal character, and his intimate interaction. He breathed by his spirit wind, his ruach, that life-giving force, into the material and gave Adam a soul and thus deemed him, created him in this way, made in his image for the purpose of glorifying him in a unique and incredible way. The Bible begins here. Your Christian worldview must begin here. The knowledge of and understanding of how to organize your thoughts must begin here as well. Notice, your hands have made me and fashioned me. I am the handiwork of a sovereign creator. And then follows this, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I'd like to illustrate this first portion First by an illustration and then move to application. So, um, has anyone heard of the Antikythera mechanism? So, I had to re-look this up, get the Wikipedia to help me up with the na- help me out with the name. So, earlier this week, I'm sure I've used this as an illustration before, but it's been long enough and it's a cool enough one to introduce again. So, in 1901, as I recall, there was a, some explorers who were looking, you know, at shipwrecks, I believe in the Marata training area. They found a Greco-Roman ship or something like that, a, Greece, a ship from ancient Greece that um, was dated, estimated to be before Jesus Christ walked the earth, like BC 80 or something. And they found this mechanism that was encrusted, you know, and preserved on the seabed of multiple gears. And for a hundred years, for a century plus, it fascinated engineers, archaeologists, historians, and scientists. Why? Because in the record of history, it wasn't until the 14th century where a geared mechanism of this kind of quality and precision was to be seen again in Earth's history. Thus, putting the lie to this gradualism of Darwinian theory that man is always advancing a little bit by a little bit, no, every once in a while, you'll find evidence that refutes this claim, and this was an example, I submit. Before Jesus was even here... There was a 35 bronze-geared, finely-tuned, what's come to be identified as the oldest known analog computer that could map precisely the activity of celestial beings and was also a calendar, predicted certain events, and allowed ship captains to navigate at this time. Absolutely fascinating. The illustration is this. What caused so much fascination, understanding, and if you go online, you can even find... Rebuilt with CNC machines virtual working replicas of this original antikythera mechanism. Well, it was evidence of handiwork that compelled the attention of the scientists, the engineer, the archaeologist, the anthropologist, and so on and so forth. It was very obviously finely crafted and designed. Its multiple interworking parts spoke of a purpose and an intention and a design. I don't know the answer to this question. How many individual, highly precise working parts are involved in your body systems? Millions? Billions? It would be easy to believe an answer like that. But does this not speak to the sin of mankind that the Antikythera mechanism, in light of the highly precise engineered body systems of man, is just a crude object, a replica of God's ability to create something that we'll spend a century trying to figure out. Meanwhile... Evidence of his sovereign creative handiwork has existed in our lives, in our own bodies this whole while, and we seem less interested to ask, what is the purpose for which this handiwork was made? In order to have a right understanding of your purpose, the meaning of what God has laid out for his creation, of how to be in right relationship with him, you must begin with certain presuppositions, among them the fact that a sovereign God created you by his glorious power in the first place to a particular end to give him glory. And it is the fall and our sin which obscures that obvious and evident fact. The psalmist understands us when he says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. And then he follows with this, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The commandments of the Lord become important to us. Well, think of it this way. They Antikythera through a mechanism. What if those scientists could, would have been able to find, or what if it had been available to them, the writings and the schematics of the original inventor of that uh, you know, BC analog computer? Oh, they would have poured over them. They would have paid such close attention to those writings. They would have been fascinated at this, Uh, you know, pre-Christ era Da Vinci-like genius mind that created this analog computer. Well, saints, not only do we have the evidence of God's handiwork in our own bodies and all of creation, but we also have the writings, we also have the schematics of the purpose for which we are designed in the Word of God you hold in your hand today. So it is only our sin featured in our society and in our culture and in fallen man that we don't give infinitely more attention to the writings and the schematics in the word of God that explain the purpose for which we are designed. That is undeniable when you consider the innumerable body systems that were handcrafted by the sovereign the day when he first breathed life into that dusty form with his own hands, so to speak, from the first day or the sixth day of creation with Adam himself. Now let me illustrate, or let me Give an application. Why is this important? Seeking understanding. Acknowledging our sovereign creator. It is a fundamental premise in our quest for understanding. It is a necessary precondition. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 19, 11. He's asked a supposed difficult question, you know, in the next life. Uh, or I can't remember exactly the setup. But if you go there, you'll find Jesus saying, Have you not read? Male and female, he has created them. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And then Jesus commands, according to the original intent and design, according to the writings and schematics of God's created order, why he purposed and how he fashioned the difference between male and female and the purpose of marriage, procreation, the glory of God, fruitful and replenish the earth, and so on and so forth. But the people of that day had allowed themselves and their sin to become confused as to the terms and conditions of God's original covenant order. And I think you recognize today, if you watch the news, that we're even more confused still. I give this to you as a warning. I'm going to name some names here. I want you to be thoroughly equipped with good discernment so that you're not easily led astray. There are two thought leaders that I listened to in an interview this week who are rising in prominence among conservative circles. Perhaps you've heard of both of them. The first is Jordan Peterson. The second is Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin, a classical liberal, a gay man so-called married to his husband, Seems an affable enough fellow just by personality-wise and has some shared, you know, worldview um, overlap with some people who are seeking for individual liberty and will call certainly some things of this crazy socialist order we seem to be careening towards foolish. Now, on the other hand, Jordan Peterson was recently signed with a conservative outlet named Daily Wire. I'm I'm sure you've heard of them as well. He's perhaps the most popular and preeminent philosopher and psychologist that is writing today. And on his tours, he sells out stadiums, literally to talk for hours about the meaning of life. Well, Dave Rubin opened for him on a 125-city tour and listened to Jordan saying over and over again that there is true meaning to be found in responsibility. And chief among the responsibilities... That a parent can step into is that of raising children. So Dave Rubin listened over and over again and he was converted, quote unquote. He wanted more meaning in his life. He became convicted, quote unquote, that his selfish lifestyle needed some reform. And so he and his quote unquote husband decided to secure the services of two uh, surrogate mothers to raise chi- or to uh, bear children on their behalf. And then they began to discuss this calling of parenting. What is missing in this picture? Premise one, you are made and fashioned by a sovereign creator according to an original intent and design. Have you not read Jordan Peterson? Have you not, Dave Rubin, read that in the beginning, God created them male and female? And though it is a virtue... And though there is meaning, secondarily, to be found in godly responsibilities, including the raising of children, if your worldview is not shaped from the get-go on the sovereignty of God, in his created order and his word, this is how quickly distorted you can become. And the two proceed to discuss, well, we know that children do benefit from breastfeeding, and that's something, obviously, that is difficult to manage with two men raising a child. Oh, Dave Rubin interrupts. Don't worry, I have two industrial freezers in my garage full of breast milk again. The handsmaids, if you will, who are serving these two men, their services have been procured not only for their wounds to grant them children, but for their body functions to provide them breast milk as well, it would appear. And they're going to secure the services of other maternal influences to help the babies along and so on and so forth. What is wrong with this picture? What is wrong with this picture is the sovereign creator, his authority and intentions, the design, the handiwork that our bodies represent, his schematics and his word are not considered as these men proceed to find meaning and to reimagine society in light of a, you know, whatever, developmental hypothesis, social structure, that their neo-Darwin assumptions lead them to believe is normative now. This is a real problem. But be warned, saints... We have a standard by which to judge these kinds of things. We, would be easily, we could easily be deceived by the false prophets of our day. As the darkness of our culture grows, we might look for any little ally. But remember, if someone is the enemy of the Lord, they must also be our enemy as such. That's not to say we hate them, we despise them, or anything like that. But it's to recognize that the line of demarcation between those who are in Christ and those who are out, Christ is a, out of Christ is as sharp as uh, what the scripture says the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It had been a, a whole different scenario if for 125 cities Dave Reuben had heard the gospel preached. Over and over again, you young men, you lost generation of America. Your aimlessness, your listlessness, and the sense, you know, uh, th- sense of self-hate that our culture has inspired in your souls can only be answered one way. There's a sovereign creator who has made you in his image. You and your sin have transgressed his law. Repent of your sin, turn to him, and look to his writings and schematics in these scriptures to find your identity and meaning. Perhaps Reuben, if he had heard the gospel 125 times, might have repented of his homosexual lifestyle and turned away from his sin. And instead of doing a shortcut and manufacturing some sort of alternate way to continue in his lost, desperate hope of meaning in this world, perhaps he could have found repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And pray for him, and pray for Jordan Peterson, because as long as the Lord tarries and they're still alive... There yet remains hope. But there are no shortcuts in this quest to stand on Christ and His Word, proclaim His truth without equivocation, alteration, perversion, or twisting, no matter the battle in front of us, preserving the remnants of the liberal West in the face of great social leftism and so forth. I'm sorry. We're limited in what our allies can be and the a degree that we can link alongside them. And the Scriptures give us the perspective to help us discern who and how we link arms with, find unity with, and how we move forward given the situation at hand. If we are seeking understanding, if we are seeking to grow in our knowledge of reality or our sense of personal meaning or anything else, it can only be measured objectively by the commandments of the Lord. And that understanding is preface; it's predicated. It has a basis and a foundation that God in His sovereignty has created us in the first place. And this leads us to 74, which says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. There is a real affirmation and camaraderie. It's not going to come through some watered-down, big-tent conservatism as I've been railing against in this message. No, the encouraging relationships, revival, if you will, movement, if you will, or any kind of mutual encouragement that is drawn between people will only come from a mutual fear of the Lord, which means an honor and a respect for what He has spoken, an acknowledgment of His authority, and the categories of holiness and sin are clearly defined and affirmed, and we repent and obey accordingly. This is what 74 tells us. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Oh, I found a brother. I found unity, affinity. We are a family. We're co-belligerents. We can fight together. We can push forward in this, you know, cause of life. Why? Because we both feared the Lord. I have hoped in your word. You have hoped in your word. I can't tell you how encouraging it is to my soul when through the course of especially this vacation season, we have visitors that check in at Providence new faces and then you ask them where do you come from what's your church background and invariably they found us online they've seen that there's a high value for the scriptures they share that themselves and they begin to tell how the Lord in his faithfulness has given them a sound body of believers who stand upon the inspiration and infallibility of the Word of God and seek to be a light in a dark generation and to not compromise and sin and, and fall into the sins of the culture with respect To the authority and the clear profession of the knowledge and the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're in a conversation like that, what you are feeling is what Psalm 74 says: the affinity, the camaraderie, the unity, and the brotherhood, if you will, the family connection of those who fear the Lord. And it is a happy thing, something worth rejoicing in. All this, the psalmist makes his appeal according to the covenantal nature of God. God is sovereign, God is personal. Upon him is built, the fear. upon the fear of the Lord, that is, is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Seeking understanding is a, a valuable enterprise only when you begin with who he is, the creator, the sovereign. And ultimately, therefore, any progress in regards to our own lives, repentance and sanctification, is ultimately for his glory. Second major point, the psalmist makes his appeal according to terms and conditions of the covenant. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Your steadfast love, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. You'll notice with these phrases like let your, let the, let those, there's a number of petitions. These are requests that the psalmist is making But notice, not only are there petitions, but there's also a grounded, a foundation. It's teaching us, giving us categories of prayer that are godly. Let your steadfast love come for me. Not an ungrounded, false idea of what I prefer love to be, no. A steadfast love, instead, verse 76, according to your promise to your servant. And that promise refers to the objective reality of the Word of God, which circumscribes, which defines, which delineates the category, which specifies what love is. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. There is no mercy apart from the law of God. There is no steadfast love outside of His covenant and His promise. Let the insolent be put to shame. Well, I'll save some of these other requests for the next point. Nevertheless, or suffice it to say for now, the terms and conditions of the covenant, they shape the context of his prayer. Not only is he beseeching the Lord and bringing his requests, but he's basing them on something solid. He recognizes that the covenant terms, that is the things that the Lord has laid out in his word, in his precepts, in his law, in his testimonies, his statutes, his promise, and his rules, that these things are God's merciful tools. They are instruments of sanctification. As he grows in appreciation and application of them, he will grow more into the image of his future Lord and Savior, as he writes, and for us, the Lord and Savior Jesus, who has come. That is the vision for the third use of the law, by the way, in theology. Third use of the law is it's a vision for sanctification. It's a means whereby we can rightly worship the Lord. The promises, statutes, commandments, and so forth, the moral imperatives of our God, give us instructions on how to please Him. And since our heart has changed, we have a growing desire desire to do just that. And as these terms and conditions of true covenant worship continue to affect our prayers and shape our desires and sanctify our souls, then our prayer life becomes more powerful and more aligned with things of substance and foundations. We don't just pray according to to ourselves, our self-gratification and what we think, but instead we pray according to what God has laid out as foundational principles for our life and calling. Among these principles is this, that there's purpose in affliction as we mentioned before. It's a surprising verse, perhaps for some, verse 75. He says, I know that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Too many have assumed That the faithfulness of the Lord is always and only expressed in answers to prayer that include things like healing, prosperity, and being free from the current affliction that one is going through. I had a conversation like this last week and pray for this individual. I won't name him here, but he is, dealing. you can talk to me about it at a different time, not a member of this church. He's received a prognosis of cancer, did a biopsy, and sure enough, it's malignant. So he told me he's believing in healing, he's confessing that God had done so and he continues along these lines and I was nervous as he spoke because I wasn't sure that there was a category in his mind for the faithfulness and the righteousness of the Lord involved in afflictions themselves. It's not to say that God does not heal and doesn't have purposes in healing, but it's also to say that we don't judge the faithfulness of God based on our personal healing alone. The psalmist says that the Lord in his faithfulness afflicted him. This is a category that's not popular to preach but is certainly biblical. God is faithful by prescribing to you difficulties and hardships that will cause you to be transformed and changed into his image. And yes, we pray that he would relieve us of those burdens, and that's not wrong. But we also must affirm with the psalmist that in his faithfulness and righteousness, he has purposes in hardship, and he will use them to teach us his ways. To teach us his statutes, that we don't go astray according to his word, verse 67. It's good for me that I was afflicted, verse 71, again, to learn his statutes. Or to recognize, Lord, your rules are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. What's the nature of the afflictions that the psalmist is dealing with? Well, among them, of course, is this slander. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. How many, when falsely accused, how many, in facing the injustice of this wicked world, practically drive themselves insane because things are not right? they have been unduly treated. Injustice reigns, if things are unfair. Systemic inequality plagues the human condition since the fall. There are many who make it their aim and cause not to rest until all of that is righted. I tell you, you take on a burden too big for anyone to bear and if you prescribe that duty to government, you will soon live in a tyranny. There is a future, Peter tells us, what, that we're waiting for where every issue will be addressed. It's the new heavens and new earth. It's the final judgment. It's the second coming. In the meantime, better to assume that if unfair and unjust things have happened to you, that God has a purpose in and through them, he will at times provisionally deliver you from them along the way. But in the end, on that final day, everything will be satisfied according to his perfect standards of righteousness and justice. Don't forget this. Seeking steadfast love. This almost says in verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So get this straight. He's afflicted with false accusations. And naturally you would think the only way to be comforted when you're being lied about is for that liar to be exposed or to at least shut up. Again, if your affliction is something like a pestilence or a disease, it's natural to assume the only thing that's going to comfort you is that you'll be relieved from that affliction and that disease. Or if your affliction is a heavy trial, having to endure with uh, prayers for a lost loved one, it's easy to imagine the only way to be comforted is that they would repent and to believe and you can't rest or receive comfort if you do so. Was this a source of comfort in the affliction that the psalmist looked for? Well, no. He says, let your mercy come to me that I may live. Or, excuse me, verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to Your promise to your servant. Steadfast love. The Hebrew word has said. That's the gospel of the Old Testament that we tend to highlight in the Psalms so often. In other words, it is the gospel of grace, personally assured to the believer that is the ultimate source of comfort, no matter the affliction. It's so tempting in our fallen world and in our flesh to limit the sources of comfort to a particular answer to prayer that matches our request. But note here, the psalmist is under no such delusions. He realizes he can have comfort right now in spite of his afflictions, not when his accusers shut up, but no, when he realizes, to greater degree, that the Lord has graciously saved him. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Last week at the Lord's table, we had pictured before us those tangible elements that represent comfort in any affliction, And a sufficient source at that. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ that is sufficient to grant you comfort no matter the trial. Whether it is protracted, a long one, and you have to endure it a long time. Or whether the Lord delivers you of it in short order. Realize that the source of comfort is the gospel ultimately and his promises to his servant. Those promises transcend. You know, we said before that God is both imminent, personal, connected intimately with His creation, but also that He's over and above and surpassing. And the promise of the gospel is that that imminence of the Lord, that personal connection, has the power to lift us up unto a transcendent state, if you will, to seat us in heavenly places with Christ beside Jesus at the right hand of the Father, to grant unto us eternal life. You want to talk about healing, you want to talk about deliverance from affliction. There, in the promises of the gospel as the ultimate hope. And these are the true sources of comfort in the difficulty of our day to day life. So, the petitions, the requests for deliverance have a good foundation. Match the petition with the foundation as you're going through this text. He's seeking mercy in verse 77 Come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. There's an example in the New Testament without time to turn there, mark it for your own study, perhaps Matthew 15, 22-28, the Canaanite women, woman outside of the you know, symbolic or ethnic privileged people seeks Jesus, and she cries out to him for deliverance for her demon-possessed daughter. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, she cries, in humble, unmitigated, just desperate, hope-invested, In one man who can intervene on her behalf, that man also fully God, Jesus Christ, her Savior. She was rebuked by the disciples, but affirmed by Jesus Christ. She said, even the dogs eat crumbs from their master's table. She was not a self-important. She was not a, a person. She was not proud and lifted up. She didn't come to Jesus because she felt she had the right or her works had deserved her audience with the healer. She came... Pleading only one thing, mercy. In order to receive mercy, you must affirm that you don't deserve it. Mercy presupposes a knowledge of your own guilt and the authority of the one to whom you make your appeal. The sincere cry for mercy affirms the law of God. And that's why these two things are put together. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. No one sincerely pleads for mercy from the Lord, Without recognizing that his law is just and they fall short of it. No one sincerely pleads for grace from God through the gospel, which is the only way to receive it, until and unless they affirm that God has spoken, his word is unchanged, his law stands forever, and they have broken it, and they deserve hell. Hence, that petition for mercy is grounded on the knowledge that God has spoken. Petition and foundation come together in the yod portion. Final point today. The psalmist makes his appeal according to the covenantal nature of God, terms and conditions of covenant, and finally the destiny, covenant destiny of the peoples. And it's interesting here, he seeks for three things, perhaps we could say in summary. He seeks for justice, he seeks for influence, and he seeks for honor. Are these not popular virtues or things that people desire? The difference between people's quest for these things in our day and age and the psalmist's grounded petition is that none of these are offered, requests offered in a self-serving context. Instead, they're grounded petitions. Psalm 119, again in verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let the insolent be put to shame. In other words, he says, intervene in my case, and do justly on my behalf. Those who have broken your law, may they be judged. May your glory be upheld in the punishment of the wicked. This is not a wrong prayer to pray. No, ultimately, although when there's an individual person in view, I would suggest we should always pray from a heart of humility that God would grant him the same repentance that he's granted you. But there is coming a day when the rebel, the unrepentant, insolent one, which means that, of course, that they're a rebellious much like a child, he re- throws a temper tantrum and refuses to acknowledge the authority of his parents. There is coming a day when they will be put to shame. They seek to put the righteous to shame in the meantime. In verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame, but conversely, let the insolent be put to shame. In other words, O oh Lord, let, the just, let your justice rule. Let it flow down like rivers, let it flood across this earth one day when you return. In your, perfect, uh, in your perfect judgments, to settle all accounts according to your righteous rule. According to the word and glory of God, consider my appeal. Again, a biblical example of this that I love, Daniel 6. There we find Daniel's diabolical accusers. They slandered him in a creative way. They said, we're not going to be able to insult his integrity or to catch him in a sin or to catch him in an illegality, I guess, unless we find it with respect to the law of his God. So they went behind his back, and they connived with the king, appealed to his ego, and passed a law that it was illegal to worship anybody for a period of time except the king of Persia or whatever it was, Darius, at the time. And so the law goes into effect, and sure enough, they're just a bunch of peeping toms looking at Daniel. But Daniel... And a bold proclamation of King of Kings and Lord of Lords for his Messiah in full view of the world praise toward Jerusalem, and that is condemned. Well, you see that God intervenes in this situation to put to shame his diabolical accusers and to vindicate his son, as it were. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, yes, but it is the sovereign God, the one who created those lions in the first place and created Daniel that shut their mouths. But what happens, kids? After Daniel is rescued from the lion's den, who gets thrown in their necks? You guys remember? The yeah, the advisors, his accusers. Were they eaten by the lion's kids? Yeah. It says before their feet even touched the ground, they were devoured. In this instance in Daniel's life, it's a picture of what will happen in God's scales of justice when, every, when things are addressed fully, finally, and ultimately in his perfect time. In the meantime... Though we suffer afflictions, we nevertheless can stand in faith that in the end, the insolent will be put to shame. But those whose hearts are blameless in his statutes will not. Seeking justice, but grounded on the glory of God. Seeking influence, but not influence for one's personal namesake. No, but again, for the Lord's reputation. Verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. So much like Daniel, we can't find fault with him unless it's with respect to the law of God. What does that illustrate? That Daniel had a reputation of faithfulness unto the law of his Lord and Master. And that should be the testimony of us as his people as well. So that those who know us and know the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives are inspired to fear the Lord as well. And likewise, us to them. So that once again, like, chapter, or like verse 74 says, that those who fear you see me and rejoice because they have hoped in your word. The relationship of one believer to another finds its unity, finds its purpose, finds its, its vibrant health in the fact that we have, that both of us, all of us, in Christ, fear the Lord. And in this case, as you grow in the statutes of the Lord your God, then your children, uh, parents, as you instruct them in family worship, can grow in the fear of the Lord as well. What a great prayer for us, and a grounded one at that, parents. Let those who fear you, let my children fear you and turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. And may you equip me to share those testimonies with them regularly as we open up and apply the word of God. Finally, seeking honor. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. A petition and the foundation. <coughs> we contrast the plight of the insolent, to the promise of future glory. This is uh, not shame and honor as we see it in the eyes of society, but rather shame and honor through the eyes of God. In Luke 19, 17, in Matthew 25, 21, Jesus gives the parable of the talents. For those who have stewarded the call that he has given them, they receive this affirmation, well done, good servant because you have been faithful in very little. In one instance, he says, you shall have authority over 10 cities. In Matthew's case, he says, enter into the joy of your master. And this is the kind of affirmation that we ought to look for. Faithfulness to the Lord who saved us to live according to his statutes, his testimonies, his precept, his law, his promise, his rule, his word, and his commandments. So that on that final day, to the glory of the Lord, we may not be put to shame, but the evidence of that fear of the Lord, that knowledge of God as our sovereign and our Savior, has so thoroughly worked its way through our character and our testimony and our growing obedience, our sanctified life, that in the end, we might hear the affirmation of the Lord. It be said of all of us, not to our praise, but His glory, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, Enter in to the joy of your master. Let us close in prayer that the Lord would do this of us this day and the days following. Lord, we thank you for the assurances and the certainty that we find in your holy word. I pray that you would, by these means, Lord, inspire and convict and correct and transform us into your image. That we might walk in your statutes and precepts and law and so forth. That a growing testimony would share that of the psalmist. That those who fear you would be friends with us because we fear you as well. And that those who know us, Lord Jesus, find in us a testimony of the faithfulness of the Lord. We thank you that this is possible through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose steadfast love has paid on his cross the price for our sins. I pray that the promise of his resurrection would inspire us to endure the afflictions in the meantime, and that we would seek Him and Him alone as our ultimate source of comfort along the way. Lord I pray that we, as we journey through Psalm 119, will grow in our own walk with You, even as we see the maturity of the psalmist growing with each stanza, as it were. May that be the pattern in our lives. Unto the praise and the glory and the advancing kingdom of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.